Whether we like it or not, death is a part of life in this world. If you have never experienced the deep pain of grief at the loss of someone you dearly love, you will. You will. It's just part of the story of life in a fallen world. So what is it we need to know in order to find both hope and comfort in those most difficult seasons of grief? Well, that's what we want to talk about this morning. If you have a Bible, turn with us to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you're new with us, we've been walking our way through the New Testament book of 1 Thessalonians. Last week, Jeff told us that the believers in Thessalonica were so convinced of the imminent return of Christ. Some of them actually quit their jobs and were sitting on a hill waiting for Jesus to return. And that's true. I don't think it ever crossed their minds that some of them would die before they experienced the return of Christ. But some time has passed and some of them have died. And so now it's raised all kinds of questions. Now what happens? Will they miss the coming of Jesus? Will they miss this grand event? Will I ever see him again? Will I even know them? So I think they voiced these questions to Timothy. Timothy brought them back to Paul. One of the things that's noteworthy is we know that Paul was only in Thessalonica a number of weeks. And yet with these brand new believers, there was such a strong message of the return of Christ. It shows up in chapter 1, it shows up in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. It was clearly a main theme of Paul's teaching. We pick it up in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. So this is something they need to know in order to have hope even in the midst of their sorrow and grief. Paul refers to those who have fallen asleep. This was actually common language in the ancient world. It was phrased in different ways. Sometimes in the Old Testament you read about somebody that died and went to sleep with their fathers or sometimes it's about someone who went to their rest. It was that kind of terminology. Paul takes this concept and is going to develop it further because it has more meaning for those that have died in Christ. The sleep is referring to the body. Even in the ancient world, it was a reference to the body. Where did the body rest? There were all kinds of different beliefs in the ancient world then what happened from there as far as life after death. 
But it'll be evident in this text that the sleep is in reference to the body, but as a believer, the idea of sleep suggests a temporary state. When you go to bed at night, there's the assumption, I'm gonna wake up in the morning. It's a temporary state. Some of you this morning will sleep through the sermon, <laughs> but you will awaken in time to go home. It's not a permanent condition. And you'll go home well rested, so that's good. <laughs> Paul does not say we as Christians should not grieve. He says we should not grieve as those who have no hope. It's very important that we don't overly spiritualize grief to the point where we think if we really believe, we shouldn't grieve the loss of someone whom we loved. That isn't spiritual, it's just indicative of a lack of emotional health. Paul, when he wrote to the Philippians, talked about if his friend Epaphroditus would have died, he said, it would have been sorrow on top of sorrow for me. It is deeply painful. We grieve the loss of someone we deeply love, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope. Now, I've been a pastor for 40 years. I've walked a lot of people through grief. I've done well over 300 funerals. I've seen really bad destructive grief and I've seen those that grieve with hope. But one of the very consistent things that happens when someone dies, and it doesn't matter if these people have a secular worldview, it doesn't matter if they have no interest in God, it doesn't matter if they're a different religion or have no religion. One of the consistent things I see is when someone dies, the people that love that person suddenly want to believe there is life after death. And you'll hear it in the things they say. They talk about so-and-so is in a better place. So-and-so is looking down on us. So-and-so has become an angel. You hear all these different things. But the reality is for most people in their worldview, it is nothing more than wishful thinking. They have no reason to think that other than just deep in their gut, they want to believe that's true. Which I think is interesting because I think it is true that deep in our gut, as people made in the image of God, there's something that causes us to want to believe there's got to be something more than this, and there's got to be something better. People in the middle of the night, in their most difficult moments, want to believe, please tell me there's something more. We as Christians, do believe there's something more, and it's not wishful thinking. It is rooted to an event in history that took place on this earth about 2,000 years ago. We believe that the God of the universe took on human flesh. 
that he died on a cross to make payment for sin, that he was buried. And because he had made payment for sin, he also conquered death because death is the result of that sin. This was evidenced by the fact that three days later, he rose from the dead, once for all time, conquering sin and death. And it's because Jesus rose from the dead that we believe that one day we too will experience a resurrection of the dead. Paul connects these dots in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if Jesus is still in the grave, then there is no life after death, and we're just a pitiful people. But if it's true that Jesus rose from the dead, indicating he had conquered death once and for all, then we as believers should expect to experience a resurrection, literally, physically, bodily, a resurrection from the dead. Now Thessalonians was a very early letter, well within the lifetime of people who are eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. We know for certain that the religious Jews would have done anything to have stopped the movement of Christianity, including putting Christians to death. Don't you think if it was possible to open a tomb and display the dead body of Jesus, they most certainly would have done that to stop Christianity once for all time. But that isn't what happened. As a matter of fact, what happened was the opposite. Christianity exploded out of Jerusalem because the evidence was overwhelming for a resurrected Christ. So that's where Paul goes, verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and the grammar is, if we believe, and we do, that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. I think the best way to understand this text is to follow the three times that the Greek preposition soon, which is translated with, occurs in the text. And this is the first of those occasions. One of the questions we have when a loved one dies in Christ, and in those moments there's such a feeling of loss and such a feeling of separation, there's something deep within us and we wonder, will I ever see that person again? You know, where does that person go? Will I ever see them again? Will we know each other? Will we have any kind of a relationship with each other? Well, Paul just answered that question. The body has gone into the ground and is asleep. It's a temporary condition. The immaterial part, the spirit, has gone to be with Jesus. 
With Jesus doesn't mean floating on a cloud somewhere. Doesn't mean disappearing into the twilight zone. Doesn't mean becoming part of the energy of the universe. It's a term of relationship. Awake, alive, with Jesus. Now there's a lot of mystery and unknown to that. For example, will we in that state have a body, kind of a temporary in-between body? And the answer is, I don't know. We're not told. What we are told is that the immaterial part of us is very alive and with Jesus. And when Jesus returns, he will bring them with him. So whoever that is for you, whoever it is that you've lost, understand that when Jesus comes, those people are not gonna miss the party. They actually return with Jesus. Now the text keeps reminding us these are those that are asleep in Jesus which of course is a reference to believers, which always raises the question, what about my loved one who has died without Christ? And I know that's an extremely painful thing to process. We certainly don't have time to go into all that this morning, but let me just make a couple comments. Because oftentimes people will say to me, so-and-so died, and I know they didn't know Jesus. To which I respond, you don't know that. You don't know that. The reality of grace is so scandalous that it's possible if in the last 30 seconds of life, if Jesus made himself known one more time, that person could choose to receive Jesus. If in order to be saved, you had to go out and get good, if in order to be saved, you had to go out and get religious, there'd be no hope. But God's grace and mercy is such that you actually don't know what transpired in those final moments. So you don't know that. Think about the thief on the cross. This was a really bad guy. That's why he was on the cross. And imagine you're his parents. And as soon as he's nailed to the cross, you don't want to see this horrific ending, so you leave. And someone says to you, did your son have a relationship with God? And they would have said, no. No, he was a really bad guy. They would have had no idea that something amazing happened in that final moment when that thief on the cross turned to Jesus and affirmed him. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. They would have said no. I would have said, you don't know. 
So for starters, you don't know that. Second of all, you do know God. And you know God is a heart of kindness and a God of compassion and a God of love and a God of justice. So you have to trust your loved one with God. Now, that's not to imply that at the end of the story, everybody makes it in. I don't think that's true. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. Frankly, I think that would be reckless to say that. But I do know that God loves your loved one more than you loved him. And you know the heart of God. You just have to trust him. The text goes on, verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. In other words, this isn't Paul's opinion. This comes directly from God himself. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So there will be a generation of Christians that will be alive when Jesus returns. It could have been Paul's generation, but it wasn't. But it will be some generation of Christians that will be alive and remain. I think part of the concern of the believers in Thessalonica is they were so excited about the return of Christ, but their loved one has died, and wherever that loved one is, they're going to miss out on this great celebration of the return of Christ. So what Paul's addressing is those of us who are alive and remain will not precede those who have fallen asleep. In other words, there was this thought that they'll get left behind. Wherever they are, they're left behind because we'll go with Jesus. And Paul says, no, it's not going to work that way. We're not going to precede them. Verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Notice it says the Lord himself. It's not an angel. It's not a representative. It's Jesus. Jesus is coming back. There's this myth that when Jesus returns, it will be this quiet, sneaky thing where he's going to sneak in and sneak out and suddenly a bunch of people will be missing. You know, the vacuum cleaner sitting there running without anyone pushing it. And the razors on the counter running with no one to use it. And someone at work just disappeared from their desk and the cars crash into the ditches. But what the text just said is this is going to be a noisy, raucous celebration. The shout is like a military shout. It's a loud shout. The voice of the archangel, a little bit harder to figure out what that is. And then the trumpet of God. The imagery would be the shofar, the ram's horn that the Jews used to communicate in battle and for special events. 
Put all that together and it is a loud, noisy moment. There's no sneaking in and sneaking out. And he says the first thing that's gonna happen is the dead in Christ, the bodies that are asleep will rise first, will awaken. Maybe all the noise wakes them up. So this always raises a question. Okay, if the body's gonna be resurrected, what about those people that have been cremated? To which I would say, I don't think that's a problem. First of all, Christians have died in fires, they've been eaten by sharks, they died in all kinds of ways. I don't think that's a problem. Second of all, even if you're put in a casket and in the ground, you eventually turn back to dust, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. That process is either quick or slow. But trust me, a body that's been in the grave is not really in a condition to be resurrected without God doing his thing. The other thing to think about is when we ask that question, we ask it through the perspective of a 21st century American. And we need to remember that over the last 2,000 years, lots of Christians have died around the world and have been buried in very crude conditions and their body decomposes very quickly. So whether or not you are uh, buried in the ground or, or uh, something else really is irrelevant. A lot of people uh, think today in terms of stewardship, environment, there's a lot of things to think through. But what we do know for sure is the dead in Christ will rise first. Then what happens? Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. So the generation that is alive when Jesus returns will be caught up together with them. So that Greek word that's translated caught up needs a little conversation. So the word itself just means like a violent snatching. If you remember when we were going through the book of Acts, towards the end of the book of Acts, Paul goes back to Jerusalem. There's an angry mob. The commander's afraid that the mob's going to kill Paul, so he snatches him away to protect him. It's the exact same word that's used here. Many of you are probably aware that different churches have different ideas about end times theology, what we call eschatology. And there's all different views by scholars that love Jesus and love the Bible. I think at the end of the day, you have to approach this subject with a great deal of humility. Because no matter what position you choose, it's not that clear. And maybe it's not supposed to be that clear. 
So one of the big arguments related to our text has to do with this word caught up and referring to what some call the rapture. So the question is, is caught up just a part of the description of the second coming of Christ or is it a separate event known as the rapture that precedes the coming of Christ? And there's a great deal of debate about that. So for those who believe that it's the same as the second coming of Christ, sometimes I hear them say as an argument that the word rapture doesn't occur anywhere in the Bible. To which I would say that's kind of a silly non-argument. First of all, rapture's an English word. Well, there aren't any English words in the original Bible. It's Hebrew and Greek. If you are an early Christian reading a Latin Bible, the word rapture does show up in your Bible because it's the Latin word that translated the Greek word, rapturo, which is where we get our word rapture. So it's just kind of a non-argument. It doesn't prove anything one direction or the other. The second comment I would make is I think most would agree that this passage in Thessalonians is the foundation text for establishing the view that there is a separate event known as a rapture that precedes the second coming of Jesus. It then is read into a lot of other texts. But I would suggest there would be nothing to read into those texts were it not for this text as the foundational establishing text. The problem with that is this text simply isn't clear one way or the other. It's simply not Paul's intent. Paul is not teaching eschatology here. These people have lost loved ones. Their hearts are broken in their grief over this loss. Can you imagine Paul sitting down with these grieving people and saying, hey, I think I have some charts here you'd like to see. I'd like to show you how all this works out on the chart. It has nothing to do with the conversation. I don't think Paul's teaching eschatology here. I think he is teaching life after death here. And he's seeking to comfort these people. One of the real concerns when we get sidetracked around whether there is or is not a rapture is we miss the point of the text and the point is significant because it's the second use of the word with. Those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. If you've suffered deep loss, 
There's these questions about where does that person go? Will I ever see that person again? Will I know that person? Will that person know me? What will life be like? What Paul has said is once that person dies, the body goes in the ground, a temporary sleep. The spirit goes with Jesus. When Jesus comes back, he brings them with him. Their bodies are awakened and they're reunited with a body that is changed then we who are alive and remain are caught up, don't miss the language, caught up together with them. It's interesting how much emphasis Paul puts in this text on being together again. They come with God, we gather with them. Keep in mind the value of relationship, the value of marriage, the value of family, the value of friendship, the value of relationships. These are God's values. This isn't something we made up. You might ask the question, will there be a Dairy Queen in heaven? My answer is, I certainly hope so. <laughs> but I don't know. I could not make the case that Dairy Queen is God's value system. I can absolutely make the case that marriage, family, relationships, friendships, are God's value system. There's no reason to think that would change. As a matter of fact, the text makes a very strong case that we gather together with them in the clouds. The clouds, I think, represents the presence of God. This is a consistent Old and New Testament imagery. The cloud that led them through the wilderness, the cloud that was on Mount Sinai, the cloud in the tabernacle, the cloud at the transfiguration of Christ. It's talking about gathered together in the presence of God. So if you go out this afternoon, you look into the sky, and it's a beautiful blue sky with no clouds, don't say, well, can't happen today, there's no clouds. <laughs> it's not what it's talking about. But look at what the text does say. With them in the clouds, to what? To meet the Lord in the air. One more word to talk about, and that is this word, meet. So this whole discussion about, is this the second coming of Jesus? Or is this a separate event known as the rapture? 
boils down to when we meet Jesus together in the clouds. Will we go back up or will we come down? If it's the second coming, we go down. If it's a rapture, we go up. So some seek to make the case that this word meet in the Greek had a technical usage for a group of people that would go out of a town to meet a dignitary that was coming to visit. They would then escort that dignitary into town with them. Seeking to use that to make the case, it's the second coming we meet and then escort Jesus into town. Now one of the challenges with that is what sometimes happens with these words is you have a scholar that says the word means this. Then another scholar quotes that scholar. And then another scholar quotes those scholars. And pretty soon you just have scholars quoting each other. And at some point it's like that must be what the word means. But if you can get past that down to what did that Greek word actually mean, the evidence is pretty weak. I would say it is possible that that term was used in that sense. But certainly the common usage was just simply meeting one another face to face. So it can't make an argument one way or the other. Again, I don't think Paul's purpose is to teach eschatology. I don't think that's even on his mind. It's simply not what this text is about. It's about those loved ones who have died in Christ, who return with Jesus, their bodies are resurrected, we then are gathered together with them, with Jesus in the clouds. I love the way this discussion ends. To meet the Lord in the air and so shall, uh, so we shall always be with the Lord. There's our third with. The saints that have died come with Jesus. We are gathered together with them. And when we are all together with Jesus. But what the text just said is always with the Lord. In other words, the moment that day happens, there will never be another moment for all eternity where we will ever be separated again. No more loneliness, no more grief, no more sorrow, no more longings, no more partings, no more goodbyes. From that moment on together forever. Now, I don't think together means everybody in the same room always together. 
Those of us that lean toward the introvert side of the scale don't really like that description. I think it means together like we're together. Like you're together with your spouse, you're together with your kids, you're together with your friends. You aren't always huddled in one room together, but we're together. No more goodbyes, no more grief, no more loneliness, no more sorrow. For the believer, death does not win. Death is a pause in the story to be resumed in glorious fashion. Sometimes when I'm watching TV, I will remember there's something I was supposed to do. Whoops, I'm supposed to take out the garbage. I need to feed the horses. I need to drive through the Dairy Queen. <laughs> so I hit the pause, do whatever it is, come back, hit the play. That's what death is to the Christian. The story's not over. It's a pause to be resumed in glorious fashion forever. You know what's amazing about that? Is that day may start today. I walk a lot of people through grief. And sometimes in the midst of the painful grieving season, it feels like I'm not sure I can get through one more day. And there's deep hope in the realization, maybe you won't have to. Maybe last night, when you put your head on that pillow, it will be the last time you ever had to do so with such grief and loneliness. Because maybe Jesus comes back today. Maybe it's tomorrow, maybe it's 100 years from now, I don't know. But in those most difficult seasons of grief, grief we're full of hope in the realization maybe today and from that moment on together forever. This is what we need to know. Paul says, therefore comfort one another with these words. It's not just be comforted, it's comfort one another. This is what we need to know together. To go through these most difficult seasons of life. This is what we need to know. In order to go through the most difficult seasons of grief as a people of hope. Our Father, we celebrate this wonderful passage that reminds us death doesn't win. That one day Jesus is coming back and he will bring with him those who have died in Christ. 
that we will be gathered together with them, with Jesus forever. Lord, until that day, we ask that you be our comfort and our hope. In Jesus' name, amen.